We're living in some interesting times. We especially need to press close to Jesus and to each other. May we do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of breaking the bread of life. And I pray today, Lord, may it be encouragement and challenge. May it be edification and exhortation. May it be consolation. Guide us now, Lord. May the Spirit be here and may the true prophetic work go forward as we study perhaps the paramount prophet of the Old Testament. Now, Lord, I ask for your guidance, your leading, your provision, your teaching, your touching. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to talk with you about a crisis of faith. This is probably the most important message that I've presented in this series. It might be the most important one. There is coming to the people of God a test of their confidence in God. A narrative of explanation by way of action as to where where their devotion is at, where their allegiance is to. The moment we're in right now is God's next step in taking us on a journey that will reveal to us things about ourselves and things about Him. Some of the things we'll see about ourselves we don't like. We tend not to want to admit, to acknowledge. I said in a previous message that the carnal heart is naturally blind and stubborn. I'm no different than you. This is an element of our human journey. We have to be honest with ourselves and make this journey if we intend to discover what it is that would separate us from Christ. When COVID-19 broke upon the American scene and people were worried that they couldn't buy what they needed, we saw shelves empty on grocery stores. And we still see marks of trauma and stress on the faces of people. In the future, God's people will come up to a moment in time when they will be either more confident in Christ or shaken out of a relationship with Jesus. That's why what I'm going to share this morning is so absolutely important because God doesn't bring anyone to that moment without the evidence and the opportunity to remain trusting in the rock of ages. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to the book of Numbers. I'm going to begin in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 because this is where the faith of a whole generation appears to end. They had been liberated from Egyptian slavery. They had made a journey through the wilderness. They had been there at Sinai and now they were ready to launch into the campaign to take the nations and dispossess them, receiving the promise that God had given. They had a request. I'm not going to take the time to show you this in the scripture. Book of Deuteronomy does explain it. They had a recommendation that spies be sent into the land. Uh, Moses, in communication with God, affirmed, God affirmed this to Moses, and the spies went in. We know the story. The spies come back. Ten of them have lost hope on the journey. They come back and report it is a land as described, but it's full of obstacles, including giants. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, declare that, yes, it is full of giants and obstacles, but it is God's promise, and this is where the trip was supposed to end, at least by way of geographical progression. And they say, if God be with us, we can do it. Unfortunately, the human heart is naturally dark, naturally disbelieving, naturally full of doubt. And the report of the spies cued in very 
uh, conveniently, you might say, in the sense of the forces of darkness, to an even darkening chapter of spiritual experience, in spite of everything God had done. It says in verse 25, verse thir- chapter 13, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron. Skipping down to verse 27, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and all the cities are fortified and very large, and we saw the descendants of Anak there. Verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. It goes on to say that the inhabitants of the land actually are eaten up by the land, which was a measure of falsehood. Now, at the beginning of this message, I'm going to talk to several groups of people. I'm going to talk to parents, teachers, and leaders. I'm going to talk to, I'm going to, talk to uh, administrators. I'm going to be talking to individuals that are making this journey and people that are leading the journey. And something you need to know right from the very beginning is that when it comes to the human experience, we were made to be connected and there is something called emotional or spiritual mirroring that I want you to be aware of. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. There's something about the emotion in one person that will get mirrored in another. When fear takes over in the mind of a leader, that fear runs rampant through the minds of those that are looking to be led. When spiritual confidence and strength is in the heart of the leader, that same confidence also weaves its way through the fabric of those that are being led, the thinking. So mom, dad, teacher, pastor, administrator, this is important for you to know. Your spiritual experience needs to remain strong. Not that you can never be a human, not that you never have your low points or your questions, but you need to walk with God in a real relationship. You must make the journey. Because if you don't make the journey, you'll come to portions of the journey in which the devil will look to jump on you and destroy you with the fear that is naturally in every human heart. It is the elemental and original emotion after sin. Fortunately, the love of God can cast it out, ek balo. Perfect love casts out fear. That same phrase is used when Jesus said, ask for reapers to go into the harvest. Ask God to cast them out, put them out. There's something about the intervention of God that has the ability to instill a new emotional experience. But we see in the experience of the 10 and the two that certainly the heart of the larger part of the group, the masses of Israel, were inclined to doubt and disbelieve. This becomes in the Old Testament a type of shaking. And most of Israel will end up dying in the wilderness. If you go down to Numbers chapter 14, Looking at verse 1, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and they cried and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we would have died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Anything would be better except facing the giants. Anything would be better except confronting their fears. They felt trapped. They couldn't go forward. They couldn't go backwards. Now, if this was their first rodeo, as one of my friends says to me, then we could suspect that God is somehow responsible because he gave him too much of a fate journey to bite off. 
But if indeed they've been in a situation like this before and they have the evidence that they can do this because God's with them, then indeed this response becomes a unique type of disbelief. One writer will call it a wicked disbelief. Now I'm here to tell you, you may think you'll never have that kind of disbelief, but the Bible envisions the Christian life as a journey. And for those that are not making the journey, they will come to this kind of moment and they will be surprised at what comes out of themselves. I want to show you today how you can have faith without the cloud or the pillar. These men and women had been in a situation like this before and God had intervened and now here they were without even the crisis of the enemy upon them and they trend right back to where their hearts perhaps had always been. Take your Bibles if you wouldn't turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 1. I want to talk with you for a moment about bondage. The Israelites found themselves after a period of several centuries under the grip of slavery in the land of their sojourning in Egypt. God had prophesied to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that this would happen. We see this progression, Joseph's ascendancy to privilege and power for the protection of not only Egypt but his own family in Israel. And then we see after Joseph's death, the wonderful abundant uh, development of the nation of Israel, so much so that Pharaoh says, we've got a problem. We've got these foreigners living in our land, and if we're not careful, they'll be large enough to challenge us for control of the Egyptian dynasty. I want to talk with you about that bondage. When Jacob took his family down to Egypt, they were set aside in a different part of the country. You say, that's right, pastor, the Egyptians did not like shepherds, and that's true. But there was a divine hand behind it all, allowing the family of Jacob, Israel, to protect the culture of who they were, which would protect the relationship, which would give them the identity, which would give them the power and the confidence to be who God called them to be. Over a period of time, the relationship between them and the Egyptians changed to where they were in abject slavery. They lost the freedoms that they had had when they came into the country, I'm quite certain that they lost the freedom of worshiping and celebrating on the Sabbath. That bondage was a bondage of, of oppression. But the mirroring of the journey of the Israelites, we are now seeing in modern Western societies, and I want to talk with you about it because it's exceptionally important. We are no longer under the duress of the same kind of oppressive bondage, but we have seen in the last 50, 60, 70 years a bondage of desire. What we saw in World War II was a ramp up of industrial production without equal. Because the ravages of war never came to America, and yes, I'm speaking with an American-centric viewpoint here for sure, I know that. Because the ravages of war never made it to America, America was left with this amazing ability to produce wealth and rebuild nations of the world. What the economy looked like coming out of World War II and the financial excesses would provide would catch the Christian world off guard. And we would see along with that the development of some pretty amazing te technological devices. In the 1940s, almost nobody had a television. But by 1950, they were numbering in the millions and as you go forward into the hundreds of millions. Of course, we've progressed way past that now to where we carry access to digital media in our pocket. The truth of the matter was, was that the Christian church now had to get used to a sizable paradigm shift. 
along with the rest of the world. In an age of excess, you had to win customers. And Christianity went from casting a dynamic of collective consciousness on the society to competing for members, which turned members no longer into covenant keepers inside of a communion of faith, but into people who had to be one. Along the way, with both these economic dynamics, spiritual dynamics, and family dynamics, we see addiction developing amidst excess, and we find ourselves now in the 21st century, 20 years into the 21st century, and we see the church in a different kind of bondage. We see a bondage to immorality. That same immorality has spawned off all kinds of stepchildren, broken homes, divorce, abandonment, We see um, addiction to pornography. We see things that God designed to be beautiful and perfect within the bounds of self-control and holiness, a hold of a whole segment of society, and it's no longer just men. Let's talk for a minute about an addiction to entertainment. We went from where the most entertaining thing in our society used to be sitting around listening to people tell stories. Of course, it progressed then on to the radio. Then it progressed on to the television. Now, uh, people don't want to really be with each other. It takes way too much work. But whether it's, whether it's uh, venues for music or sports, whether it's horse racing or car racing, whether it's acts of violence in the form of cage fighting or boxing, we've come to the place now where people don't want to be alone. We have addiction to substance. It's not only illicit drugs, it's prescribed drugs, and then it's societally accepted drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, and of course now in many states, marijuana. We think about the dynamics of desire, and we see a different kind of addiction in our society, materialism, shopping. We think about the bondage that's on the church right now, and we shouldn't be surprised that the church is powerless to impact people's lives. God is allowing the birth pangs of deliverance to come upon us so that we might begin the journey again and recognize those things that would keep us in servitude to this world. And not only that, shape our identity as worldlings. When the Egyptians were there, when the Israelites were there at Kadesh Barnea, they were still very much Egyptian in their head. They had not jettisoned all aspects of the generations of the sojourn in the land of oppression. And when they come up to that moment, when the 10 spies say, it isn't going to work, they say, we knew it all along. All of the chapters of readiness had been rejected because the appetites of their heart and their mind had to be transformed. If they could have left Cana, if they could have left Egypt and gone to Canaan, in the few days it would take, the two weeks that you could get there, and there would have been no transformation that changed their appetites and their identity, they would have all said hurrah. But because God had another plan, because there had to be excised from their experience more than just shackles and taskmasters, desire itself had to be changed. Now this makes this sermon different than all the rest in some respects, because a lot of what I've just gone over the slow, subtle rising of the cultural tide of privilege and opportunity has been around us, and we now find ourselves inside the Adventist church, inside the Christian church, subject to the same desires that the rest of the world has. We're in the same venues, enjoying the same entertainment, the same substance, 
And the problem right now is, is that COVID-19 could come and upset the apple cart and make some people really think, but for some, it'll be nothing more than another speed bump. And life will go on as it has been. And instead of it being a divine call to start a new journey with Christ, it'll end up just being another, another societal blip on the radar screen. Friends, I'm appealing to you on the front side of this message that God is calling all of us to start the journey again, to anticipate the deliverance, to remember we are the generation of the final exodus. It's interesting when we think about this bondage of desire. In Patriarchs and Prophets, the author comments like this, it was when Israelites were in a condition of outward ease and security that they were led into sin. They failed to keep God ever before them, and they neglected prayer and cherished the spirit of self-confidence. You know what the word hubris means? It's an elevated pride. It's a highlighted arrogance. We're living in the age of self-confidence. Ease and self-indulgence left the citadel of the soul unguarded, and debasing thoughts found entrance. Now, the last part of this paragraph I found particularly interesting. So I'm going to talk to fellow pastors, teachers, professors, as I read these next few sentences. It was traitors within the walls that overthrew the strongholds of principle and betrayed Israel into the power of Satan. It is thus that Satan will seek to compass the ruin of the soul. Nothing's new under the sun. Now, you know from listening to me preach, I'm the last person in the world that's going to subscribe to a conspiracy theory. I'm not about to turn the narrative of divine prophecy, biblical prophecy, over to some social prognosticator in our age who recognizes the dark side of the human heart and comes up with a new theory of how it's going to turn out. They're not going to get time and space with me. God's word explains every conspiracy I need to know about and assures me there's a Christ above the conspiracy. But I am here to tell you this, that inside the church, as inside of Israel, there will be teachers and preachers. Jesus warned, warned of false prophets. And what they will do is that they will overthrow the strongholds of principle from the inside and thus encourage the lowering of the walls that would protect the citadel of the soul. You need to hear in the voice of the prophetic parent, teacher, or preacher a call to edification, exhortation, and consolation like 1 Corinthians 14 talks about. And when those calls and those exhortations are not woven into the fabric of the person's life and in the message, you've got something to be concerned about. Going on, she writes, it was by associating with idolaters and joining in their festivities that the Hebrews were led into transgressing God's law and to bring his judgments upon the nations. So now it's by leading the followers of Christ to associate with the ungodly and unite in their amusements that Satan is most successful in alluring them into sin. Come out from among them, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. God requires of his people now as great a distinction from the world in customs, habits, and principles as he required of Israel anciently. If they faithfully follow these teachings of his word, these distinctions will exist. It cannot be otherwise. Now, I want to focus for a moment on the dynamics of customs, habits, and principles. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, if you wanted to be entertained by the actors, you had to go to the amphitheater. You had to sit next to a pagan and laugh at the same things he was laughing at, be appalled by the acts of violence or immorality that enthrall your neighbor. 
In this day and age, you don't have to make that sojourn. With the onslaught of electronic media, you can now sit in the privacy of the own dark corner and create darkness in your heart by going to the same places, practicing the same customs, engaging in the same habits, and thus ending up with the same principles that define a worldling, an Egyptian, spiritual Egyptian, as it were. God is in this moment summoning his people. He's going to bring, he has brought already, the birth pangs of deliverance on the community of faith as well as the rest of the world as a wake-up call. And for God's people, it's a call to begin the journey again. We are not to have a virtual mental feeding session. We are not to be eating from or drinking from the broken cisterns of this world, thinking that somehow we won't fall in love, our citizenship won't be here in mind and heart, and especially our kids. If your kids were born in spiritual Egypt, you've got a special big challenge on your hands. Churchill once said, look at the world when a man is 20 and you'll understand the man. When our children have been birthed, as it were, into Goshen, even though Egypt is all around, it's not enough to think that somehow I'll raise the walls on my home high enough to protect my children. You can't do it. Before this message is over, I'm going to show you how you can. But we are not to be virtually engaging in the same things, not the video games, not the music, not the entertainment, not the sporting events. These are not the places God's people are to be, but the very discussion of these items leads us into what I'll call a throwback to a generation or two ago of Christianity, including Adventism. I want to take a word for a moment and talk with you about it, Pharisaism. Pharisaism, what does it mean? I know a lot of people that are my generation or older who went through our school system and lived in our churches where they really felt that law minus love was the predominant, the predominant cultural setting. It was, the, it was the air they were breathing. Now, I'm not going to suggest for a moment that this church or any other church that believed in lives of holiness, a conservative movement, I'm not going to suggest that they aren't prone to losing their love for Christ while hanging on to the rigid rules and the identity that they think is the main thing. It happens. I have no doubt that it happened. I'm also certain that all through the generations of this church, there have been godly men and women who have brought law and love combining. And at some level, it's up to us to notice, to see beyond that which would make a quick and casual excuse for me to jettison my Christian journey. Critique somebody that's supposed to be a leader, identify hypocrisy, and thus make a broad highway for me to walk whichever way I want. Doesn't make sense. But I'm also here to tell you that Pharisaism as a component describing most of Christianity is a, it's a moniker of the past. What is taken over in place of Pharisaism is what I'll call laissez-faireism. Laissez-faireism. In other words, we've come to the place where under the, the mantra of his many songs and his many messages about God's forgiving uh, grace as possible, we've wandered straight into the arms of the world. We love the same things other people love. And when a preacher, a teacher, a mom, or a dad stands up and talks to us about right and wrong, when a prophetic voice echoes from the pulpit, when God lodges a conviction in someone's heart, the first thing we want to do is identify it as some type of spiritual abuse. We want to free ourselves from the resting power of the Spirit on our lives. We want to be 
out from underneath obligation. We want to be free to move at whim and will, and certainly mostly at feeling. God is calling his people to realize that in customs, habits, and principles, we might have suddenly been brought into bondage with the world and not even know it. And yet God comes along and he brings these birth pangs of deliverance. They came to Israel. Exodus chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn there. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh finally says, we've got a problem. Israel has, has multiplied way too successfully while they've been here. That's not quite what Pharaoh says, but it is the biblical narrative. Israel is becoming a great nation. God's promises are true. In spite of the fact that Sarah was barren, in spite of the the fact that that Rebekah was barren, in spite of the fact that Rachel was barren, eventually it appears that children like the sands of the sea, like the stars in in the night sky, it's actually happening, and we have an affirmation from the leader of the Egyptian empire. What's he say to do? He says, I want all the boys in the land of Egypt, I want them thrown in the river Nile. The word comes down. Fortunately, there are two ladies who say we're not having anything of it. Their name are Shipra and Pua. They actually become part of an anti-Pharaoh movement. They believe that life is sacred, and they understand that every one of those mamas and papas has a right to hold their little bitty boys. Pharaoh calls them in and chastises them, but these women will not be dissuaded. What I want to know, friends, as the birth pangs of deliverance were coming on Egypt Egypt three and a half millennia ago, what what are the mothers and the fathers of Israel doing today? Where are the shippers and the puas to say, you know what? Something's wrong. This isn't right. We're going to We're going to detach ourselves from the things that actually make us love this place. These birth pangs of deliverance are not just for the Egyptians, or I should say for the Israelites. These birth pangs of deliverance are for Moses. Take your Bibles and turn over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Moses, who thought he had it all figured out. By the way, friends, Moses, before the converting power of the Midianite wilderness, represents Adventism in an age in which they believe Human power, wisdom, genius, strategy, favor, networking will get the job done. God says it's not going to work that way. Besides, it wouldn't work that way. The spiritual forces that Moses was going to come up against were greater than the power of his enlarged personality as the next in line to Pharaoh on the throne. And after 40 years of wandering, as it were, with the sheep of Jethro, he's in a completely different place in life. But there's going to be birth pangs of deliverance for him as well. The birth pangs of deliverance will begin when one day on the side of a hill, he sees a burning bush. He comes to it. God says, take off your shoes. And there Moses has an encounter that he really doesn't want to have. Exodus 3.10, therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Skip over to chapter 4, verse 10. After a dialogue, after watching his staff turn into a serpent, after seeing his hand leprous white, he's still not convinced. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, Exodus 4, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue and probably a lot slower after being gone for 40 years. Then the Lord said to him, 
Who's made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you're to say. But he said, please, Lord, send the message by whomever you will. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? Now, I'm going to hit the pause button on this message just a little bit. I took you all the way up to Kadesh Barnea, where the Israelites, after all the plagues, the journey through the Red Sea, the water from the rock, the food on the ground, the cloud by day, the fire by night, I've taken you all the way up to Kadesh Barnea on one end. I've brought you all the way back to Shipra and Pua on the other. I want to show you that when God intersects with your life, He's very patient. He also gives you evidence. God is not expecting you to believe without showing up in your life and showing you that he's real even though he can't be seen. It's absolutely imperative that when these moments come along and God says, all right, it's time to start moving, that God expects it will start moving. God has a real relationship with his children. He's not above being angry with his servant Moses, of whom there would be no prophet like unto him until the day of Jesus Christ. This prophet, he would tell, no, you're not going into the promised land, but this prophet he would take into heaven. God has made every, well, I shouldn't say that. God has made sufficient evidence known to Moses that it'll be okay. I want you to see something in this. It wasn't just the Israelites that got comfortable in Egypt. It was Moses that got comfortable in Midian. And you might be comfortable right where you're at right now. You might not be in those 20 plus million who've lost their job. You might still have a nice house and good income. The birth pangs of deliverance might not be on you the same way they're on other people. But I'm here to tell you today, there's a moment coming in which God is going to bring the birth pangs of deliverance into your life. And in essence, what he's going to say is, I'm not letting you out of this. You might be part of helping deliver others, or I might just be here to deliver you. But no matter what the story is, you're going to have to trust me and follow me. Isn't that what Psalm 23 says? That he leads me beside still waters. He walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. Isn't the Christian journey actually a journey? Is it to be a static kind of relationship where we get comfortable with the blessings and we don't want God to upset the apple cart? Friends, I'm letting you know that whether or not COVID-19 has shaken your world enough yet or not, by God's grace, something will come along that will if you need to be shaken. But Jesus is not willing to leave his children behind any more than the Israelites were willing to leave their children behind on the Exodus journey. God is patient. But there comes a moment when God expresses his frustration with our unbelief. And it might be worse than that. It might be that the affections of our lives are with the comfort of the things he's given. It might be even worse than that, that the affection of our lives are actually bending and, and, and the roots of our heart are growing into the soil of sin and selfishness on this very temporary planet. God comes to Moses. God comes to the Israelites. Moses has all the excuses in the book. God says, don't worry, I made the mouth. I can put words in it. And by the way, friends, be in the word, but don't worry about what you're gonna say because Jesus said to all of us in the New Testament what he said to Moses. Don't worry about it when you have to stand up and speak on my behalf. I'll put the words in your mouth. Friends, we're to be moving forward. Now God goes into a chapter of faith building. Turn over into Exodus chapter six. 
Exodus chapter 6. God's not going to leave Moses, the Israelites, or the Egyptians without a witness that he is the true God, and he can deliver. Exodus chapter 6, looking at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. God even goes so far as to say, and before you leave, they're going to give you their gold and their jewelry, and you should take it. Along the way, we watch now. There's a showdown. But in these birth pangs of deliverance, I want you to understand, when you start to move, there'll be resistance. The devil does not let go of his captives easily. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, in effect, says, how come you're bothering my servants? They must be lazy. Now they're going to get bricks without straw. Word gets back. There are people being beaten because of Moses and Aaron's dialogue with the ruler of the land. And Moses now finds his worst dream coming true. Exodus chapter 5. Look at the narrative between Moses and the people. The leaders of the slaves have gone into Pharaoh's presence and they've been told the whole story. And so when they leave Pharaoh's presence, they meet Moses, verse 20. It says in verse 21, they said to him, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you've made us odious, you've made us distinct in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, if you're a leader and conviction has come upon you for change in your life, change for your family, change for your school, change for your congregation, this is exactly what you're afraid of. You're afraid that when you start out and you start to move, something's going to go wrong and the very position you're in is going to turn into the stressor in your life. It's as if Moses could turn to God and say, didn't I tell you so? Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And the encounter that's had here outside of Pharaoh's palace is one in which Moses is experiencing a kind of stress that comes with a nascent or a new, a little faith. But Moses' faith itself is going to grow. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord. He said, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he's done harm to the people, and you've not delivered your people at all. When you think something should change in your house, maybe it's time to quit watching that program. Maybe it's time for your kids not to have those earbuds in their ears. Maybe it's time for that video game to go, or the whole system. Maybe it's time for that iPad to be looked at a little bit more by mom and dad. Maybe that reading material is really actually sowing the seeds of rebellion and love of what is dark instead of love of what is light. Maybe it's actually time for the family to go to bed at a certain time and have worship before you do. Maybe it's actually time to create a schedule for the family and morning worship's a part of it too. Maybe actually the family's going to start coming to the prayer meeting. Maybe the children are actually going to start studying their Sabbath school lesson and memorizing their Sabbath school memory verse. By the way, friends, Ellen White describes Sabbath afternoon as the time for mom and dads to sit down and go over the whole week's lesson with their kids. And thus, the rest of the week can be a time to actually talk about it, think about it. It's a great way to spend some Sabbath afternoon time, and you'd be surprised how deep and interesting, challenging, and stimulating the Word of God is. And then learning that memory verse. Whatever choice God's calling you to make, principal, teacher, administrator, 
Maybe it's actually time to stand up and recognize there are to be very clearly demarcated lines between light and darkness, the culture and the community of God's people and the culture of the world. Maybe it's time to actually go back to those convictions you were raised with. Most of the administrators in this church today are my age or older. They were raised in an Adventism that understood the differentiation between right and wrong. You're not called to politically administrate, you're called to pastorally administrate, which means strength and support for the pastors, uh, the undergirding of the word of God, the affirmation of the spirit of prophecy, and backbone to do what's right. We're living in an age where the consumer is king. Unfortunately, we've watched our churches descend into a type of bondage. And, and you know, the bondage is about desire first, but the affliction comes on the backside. We have churches and schools barely struggling to exist, and we've thrown our children, as it were, into the Nile with the crocodiles of this world, and we wonder why they're not sitting in the pews. We've fed them the, the bread of Egypt. We've allowed them to feast on the fodder of sin, and consequently, their interest in the things of God is nil or none. The problem starts in the home. It can't be fixed in the school. Oh, for some it will be. It was for me as a child. But I wasn't born in the land of Goshen. I was born in the dysfunction of Egypt. And in that Egyptian life, I saw the backside of desire. I felt the dysfunction and the discipline of doing wrong. I did not experience the beauty of holiness when I tasted and saw in the school that God was good. It's like, this is easy. I'm moving to the land of light. But for children that were raised in this Seventh-day Adventist church, they sometimes think the worst thing to be heaped upon them, and they're getting their cues from the culture, is the church. The church is backwards. The church is the problem. In an age of progression and supposedly man-made light, our children have been thrown, as it were, into the Nile River, and they don't know how to swim. Yes, indeed, when people go to make changes, they're going to find a greater type of birth pang, and they're going to have to press through that moment. They're going to have to remember that spiritual mirroring. They're going to have to dis differentiate themselves emotionally from the trauma of the ones they're leading and hang on until God can recalibrate the appetites of the heart. But God does go to building faith. He does intervene. He does step in and stand alongside the one who leads to higher ground. And we come to this experience where the showdown outside the palace involves serpents. Oh, my magicians can do that. But Moses' serpent swallows up the serpents of the magicians. And then it gets a little more intense. Water is turned to blood, and the God of Egypt becomes a stenching, flowing mess, killing all of the fish that abide in its watery precincts. And then it goes to frogs. And the frogs are actually in the land of Goshen as well as in the rest of Egypt. And from that point forward, you begin to see this differentiation. Every encounter between Pharaoh and Moses becomes more decided, more determined, more challenging. Insects, cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and death. And finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here. And their dough doesn't even have time to rise. But I want you to notice what they do, friends. It's not, it's not a helter-skelter journey out of Egypt. They assemble in order to make the journey. And as God brings the birth pangs of deliverance upon us, we will be doing the same thing. We will be assembling all the more so as we see the day approaching. We will be building the bonds of togetherness, making the journey together. 
And then we come to this crisis of faith. Exodus chapter 14, turn there, would you? I want to spend just a few moments here because this is the crisis of faith that preceded Kadesh Barnea. This is the moment that they could have reckoned back to along with all of those 10 plagues, along with water out of the rock. But they get two or three days outside of the precincts of their slavery, and Pharaoh, no longer stunned by his grief, says, we made a mistake. We need to go get them back. He brings his supreme uh, chariots and soldiers, and they feel like they've really got an opportunity because it appears that Israel has made a wrong turn on the journey to Canaan. They come down to a very interesting spot where there's a mountain range on this side and the northern end of the Red Sea here forming a wonderful trap for Pharaoh to take revenge and return his captive slaves. There they are in a spot where it appears they should not be and Pharaoh is coming from behind. They can see the glimmer and the flash of the sun on the swords and the shields of the Egyptians. Verse 10, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Have you heard that before? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone? I want to pause right there. Pastor, leave us alone. Teacher, principal, leave us alone. Administrator, president, spiritual leader of the pastors, ministerial director, leave us alone. Mama, papa, leave us alone alone. These are the words that every leader should expect as we go from the abysmal valley of spiritual death up to the high places that Jesus promises to take us to. This is what we told you. Leave us alone. We would rather serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. Now, let's be fair. If all your life had been formed in servile servitude in the land of Egypt, if you had seen the pomp and circumstance of riches and military might, the organizational instrument that kept a tight clamp on your movements and built the Egyptian empire, if this had been the whole journey of your life, you should expect that faith might still be a bit flimsy or thin, which is precisely why God brings them to this moment. When your spiritual journey is young, God will pour evidence after evidence into your experience. But there'll come a point in time when God will say, all right, we're going to see if you trust me. It's not an attempt for God to make you into a failure. It's actually an attempt for God to strengthen the faith that he begun. And I want you to remember what the book of Romans says, every person receives a measure of faith. You didn't summon it, you didn't create it, God put it there. He gives evidence. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. He doesn't show you what's going on behind the scenes, but he shows you what's going on in the visual latitudes of your life. And he says, will you recognize it as my unseen hand intervening? Leave us alone, they said. But what does Moses say? 
Moses said to the people, verse 13, do not fear. I want to bring you back to that emotional, spiritual mirroring. If you can stand firm on the promises of God, if your faith can be advanced of the ones you're leading, if your religion can be real and your sincerity true, you can actually anchor down when people are being pulled out into the ravages and the riptides of doubt, and you can keep them safe in the arms of Jesus. Like the man brought on the stretcher, it was the faith of his friends that brought him the deliverance of Christ. This spiritual mirroring is Moses' role, and it's the role of every leader, father, mother, teacher, pastor, preacher, administrator. Don't fear. Moses knew he was following God. His faith was built on a longer and deeper experience. Stand by and you will see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, which you've seen today, you will never, ever see again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And then verse 15 is an intriguing verse to me. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Why are you crying out to me? Isn't this the invitation of God? Don't we have access to God whenever we need him? Isn't he always anxious to hear from us? Or are there moments when God has already charted the course and already given the evidence and the real thing God's looking for is action, not verbiage? Are there not moments when God has said, I've given you all the pieces of the puzzle to put together a mosaic of trust in me? The interesting thing about this story, how fragile our, our minds are and our spiritual confidence, in the, in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, the writer actually states that the cloud that had been before them, and we'll see that in verse 19, the cloud was before them that that cloud actually turned into a harbinger or an omen. They thought it was actually a sign of destruction. That tells you how fickle the human heart can be. God's delivered them. The cloud's gone before them. The cloud's been above them. Why does God say to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Because there are moments in the Christian experience where God has already given his marching orders. He's already shown that he's with us. And there's only one real thing to do. And it's exactly what God says. Tell the sons of Israel, the last part of verse 15, go forward. Now skip down to verse 19. I want to establish this fact. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel in the form of a cloud, I've inserted that just for your understanding since we're not reading the whole narrative, moved and went behind them. Now, let's just make sure we understand the positioning of the cloud. For whatever shade it might have been giving, it was in front of them. And for the position it had, it would now change to go behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them. There's a second geographical positioning and stood behind them. So it, became, it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. There was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night long. And verse 21 is the action. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind. I would have loved to have been in the crowd 
when Moses started moving forward, they are going from west to east. I would have loved to have been in the crowd when Moses took his rod and stretched it over and a mighty gust of divine wind came blowing across the Red Sea and I had to hang on to my head wrap. It would have been quite a thrilling moment to watch God divide the Red Sea where there's a wall of water on the right, a wall of water on the left, and dry ground on the mucky seabed, which was mucky no more. It would have been a thrill as the sun had long since set and the midnight of potential destruction turned into the glorious beginnings of a new day. And Moses walks down into the water or before the water, as the water splits onto that dry ground and along behind him on this land bridge a half a mile wide, millions press from slavery and doubt and fear into the high ground of another evidence of God's provision. This, friends, is the journey. Now let's progress to Kadesh Barnea. Here we are. They've long since drunk from the mighty river that flows from the granite rocks or whatever substance of rocks there is there in the Sinai. They've eaten six days out of the week with fresh bread, and on the seventh day, it's still fresh even though they collected it on the sixth. And this was before the Sabbath commandment was reiterated on Sinai. On Friday, they got two omers for every person. Thus, God was communicating what had been in place since the creation, that there is a Sabbath, and on it you will rest. A few days later, he will articulate it, write it with his own finger in stone, suggesting the permanence of God's desire for a relationship with us. And then finally, after the covenant is formed on Sinai, after a reminding of a great deliverance, God leads them on to Kadesh, it's time to go. But they say, no. They not only say no, but the murmuring goes all the way back to the journey in the wilderness and the sojourn in Egypt. Oh, that we would have died in Egypt. But if we couldn't die there, the next best thing would be to die in the wilderness. And God has now, by his divine perspective, through the omniscience that only a God could have, says, I've done everything I can do to call you to a posture of belief since you refuse I will be a good father and only give you partially of what you want. I'm not going to let you go back to Egypt, but I am going to let you die in this wilderness. And thus the separating of God's people, 10 spies who lose their life in the moment, even though Caleb and Joshua were almost stoned in moments previous. When we think about the journey with Jesus, I want you to understand that it's a transformational journey. In Luke 17, God encountered 10 lepers. What does Jesus say to them? He could have turned around and spoken cleanness into their experience, but instead he says, go show yourself to the priest. It's on the path of obedience. It's the journey that leads to the healing. And then I want to think about those words in 1 John 1, 7, where it says, if we walk in the light, let's not miss the metaphor. If we move with God in the light, if our lives are a journey of following Jesus, the Lamb, wherever He goes, to take an image from Revelation. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. 
Pastor Page reminded me the other day, everybody wants to talk about 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. But what about John 1, 7, that if we walk with God in the light, the relationship transforms us and he cleanses us from the sin. It's one thing to need cleansing after I've committed an act of rebellion against God. It's another thing to experience cleansing by the journey with Jesus. So I'm going to say something right now that might be just a little bit startling, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. There are many Adventists, just like there are many Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans. There are many Adventists who have abandoned Christianity and hung on to Adventism. They have refused to make the journey. God is not leading in their lives. They're living, as it were, in the shadowy hinterlands of mighty spiritual giants who created institutions and made great sacrifices. They are the receivers of education without comparison, excellent education. They have positions of privilege and power and opportunity, and they're taking full advantage of it while God's church languishes and the children in their own homes languish and the schools languish. Oh yes, there are many who have retained a measure of godliness, but they're denying the power because God is calling us out of our lethargy. From Pharisaism, we went into laissez-faireism, and it's time for us to come back into a walk with the living Savior who takes us and puts us sometimes in the green pastures and sometimes by the still waters, and oh, how much it matters when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm laying before the Adventist church of today I'm laying before you clearly a challenge to go forward, to realize that trying to survive in some form of sanctity, spiritual sanctity inside Goshen is not our call. God is leading us on to the promised land and he's reminding us that the journey out of bondage will be an invitation to others to be a part of moving to the promised land, of looking forward to something better. The first step that ought to be considered and prayed over is the admonition of Paul in Hebrews 10.25. Do not forsake the assembling together or some are in the manner of doing. But all the more so as you see the day approaching. When Jesus takes us to heaven on the seven-day journey, it's going to be in a group. When they came out of literal Egypt, it was going to be in a group. There are things we're going to learn about God and learn about each other that we're only going to learn as we get to know each other. We can't, be, we can't press together if we don't get together. And God is calling us back so that we might receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith, nerve our spiritual backbones, and give us power in an age of addiction and bondage by desire. There is to be an experience in the Christian church that tastes sweet and is good and it's better than the ashes that are left in your mouth after the temporary pleasures of the passing seasons of sin that we encourage and experience. Yes, friends, the journey to the new Jerusalem begins with a journey of togetherness. And when we neglect the provisions, the seasons, 
when we neglect the call to prayer, when we go off on our own individual journey, we're missing out on the feedback, which would allow us to maybe think about something differently, and we're missing out on the opportunity of seeing a different reflection on the glory of Jesus. I'll leave you with this thought. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that when they came out of Egypt, they all drank that spiritual water. They all ate that spiritual bread. And he tells us that that rock was Christ. I want you to know the cloud was the visible image of Jesus leading his people. And when that cloud saw Pharaoh coming, nothing caused a single sentiment of stress in his heart or mind. He simply went to the back and created a wall of separation between what was his and what wasn't. And then he directed Moses, go forward. For some that are listening to me here today, you need to understand the next actions of the Israel, the family of God, the sons of Jacob, was to walk through the Red Sea, which Paul will describe as a form of baptism. There are people listening to me right now. They need to go forward. They need to act on the decisions they've made. They need to move on the convictions that are on their heart. For some of you, it may be diet of the actual palate. For some of you, it may be diet of the mind. For some of you, it may be chaos and disorder at home, and it's time to have a schedule. For some of you, it may be taking the, the lollipop of the world out of the mouth of your babes. Try it. It doesn't work very good, but it may still need to be done. The recalibrating of the heart for the things of heaven will involve separating from the things of this earth. But the sweetness of the joy, the innocence of the Christian experience, the love of God in the home, in the school, and in the church will make it worth it. Yes, friends, it's time for us in our board meetings and our conference committees to come back to an actual, genuine, strategic dependence upon prayer. A confidence in the living Christ to shepherd his people from where we are to the promised land. Yes, we're living in the day without cloud or pillar. That's where they were in Kadesh Barnea. But they had the story to give God the glory to make the rest of the journey knowing that he who began a good work was able to complete it. You're not where you want to be today, friends. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't make the mountain steeper than it is. Don't be afraid of what's coming. Jesus will take you step by step. Claim the promise of Habakkuk, where the prophet tells us that he'll take us and make our feet like hinds feet to where we can run in the high places. This world's not our home. Whatever pleasure and desire, whatever security you have in the moment, praise God for it, but know it's fragile. And in the end, the devil's going to try to shake our confidence in God. Peter thought it couldn't happen to him. You may think it couldn't happen to you. Remember the good news. Jesus said, I'm praying for you, Peter. I'm praying for you. And remember what Paul writes in the book of Hebrews. He ever lives to make intercession today. Friends, will you make the journey? Will you go forward? Or will you remain locked by a love for this world? Jesus can change hearts and desires. I appeal to you this morning. Let him have all that you are and take the next step knowing that he's going to take you forward to higher ground, to a happier life, to a better way with real security no matter what circumstances may be showing and what the societal fears may be evidencing. God be with you, friends. He loves you. That was Jesus who took him on the journey and he's going to take us all the way if we'll follow.